We are continuing our study on, in our series on biblical counseling here, and as we've mentioned before, and I'll mention again every time, just giving credit there, we're using, um, leaning pretty heavily on this book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp. I would highly recommend it to you. We are noting that biblical counseling is simply helping others apply God's precious and true word to their daily lives. We sang this morning how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid up in Christ, is that word of God. And God has graciously granted to us a word that if you stand in front of our, or you stand real close to a friend and you're, they're whispering to you and you can feel the moist air coming from them, that's this. It's living. It's, it's alive. It is warm. It is breathing. And it's the foundation of all that we are to do. It's the source and strength and wisdom for all of life. It's the comfort in the hard times. And it rebukes us when our hearts are cold. And it also warms that cold heart by the fire of the word and refreshes us and kindles us anew to serve the Lord. Biblical counseling, as we've said, is simply helping others to apply God's word to their daily lives. Because in doing so, we have all the assurance of hope. We have all the assurance of hope that this word does a changing work. And we have that assurance of hope because we've seen it's doing it's changing work in our own lives. We've seen what God has done through this word that defies human wisdom come and plant it in our heart, change us, conform us to his image. And so it gives us hope. And so we don't simply go to encourage the friend who has lost their job or lost their marriage or is losing their child or has lost a battle of sin. We go to them to help them see that this word changes their heart to be like Jesus. It doesn't just encourage them, it changes them. And we've noted that Paul David Trippett gives us a four-step methodology in being involved in the lives of others. Know, excuse me, love, know, speak, and do. Say it with me. Love, know, speak, and do. Good. Last week, we covered the first two elements of the love aspect of ministry. Number one was entering the person's world. And you remember we talked about looking for an entry gate. What was that entry gate? What are we looking for? Was it the situation? Was it their pain? Was it the person? What was it? So glad y'all took great notes. It was how they were responding to all those things. How are they dealing with that? Are they dealing with it in sin? Are they discouraged by it? Are they fearful about this situation? That's where we enter. And then we talked about number two, after entering the person's world, number two, incarnating the love of Christ, making it visible, demonstrating Christ to that person. Just as a reminder, let's go back to where we were last week. Colossians chapter 3. Turn your Bibles there. Colossians 3, 12 and 14. To do this work of demonstrating Christ, we've got to have the right uniform or the right clothing on. And we've been given what that looks like here in Colossians three twelve through 14. Let me read it. 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassion, holy, then put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And we talked about how as we become like Christ by His grace and through His transforming power, we, that's, we put on those things. We, we take those clothes and we lay them on our shoulders and we walk around with them, these clothes that are mentioned here. As our hearts see again and again and again the beauty of the work of Christ on the cross for us and our lives innately take on a resemblance to his character, we have the ability then to execute the ministry that is laid out for us in 15 through 17. Look at that. So we can't go just do loving ministry. We've got to incarnate Christ. We've got to demonstrate Christ to others. But we can't just go do that unless we're first becoming like Christ. That's 12 through 14. And then and then we can do the work. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. That word admonishing is not just, hey, you can do better. Keep going. It's actually rebuke. Correcting and all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this morning we will look at the third and the fourth elements of a loving ministry. Number one, enter, look for entry gates. Number two, incarnate Christ. Number three, and number four this morning, number three is identify with suffering. Identify with suffering. And number four is accept with agenda. Accept with agenda. We're going we're gonna to spend 95% of our time on number three, identify with suffering, because then number four is going to make a lot of sense. Who's been to Green, Texas? Good, most of you. So if you know you go to Green, Texas, you know where the grist mill is? You've never been in the grist mill. You know what you got to do this afternoon <laughs> after the congregational meeting. <laughs> so right below the grist mill is the Guadalupe River. And as the story goes, uh, we were at down right past. You cross over the bridge and you can stand right next to it. And you got the beautiful falls right above you to the left. And it grows roaring past you. And I was probably three or four or five years old. And my father was throwing rocks across the river. So what does a little boy do? Picks up that rock to throw it across the river. But little boys tend to not have as much control this way as they do this way. You ever seen a baby? They have great back muscles. Everything does this. See what happens when you do this with a rock? And that rock, as I wound up to throw it as far as I possibly could, wound up and flew and settled right into my father's forehead. 
and it dropped him to his knees and blood is streaming down his face. And I went to him as every young little boy knows what the proper answer to the pain is. It's okay, dad, you'll be all right. (laughs) And that's going to fix everything, isn't it? I wouldn't say that would be identifying with suffering. Because every one of us in here would know that suffering is a reality in this life that is far more painful than a little bit of a rock hitting your forehead. And I really don't have any understanding how you're supposed to cope with suffering in this life if you don't have Jesus. I don't know. I don't know how you do it. The sheer pain of of just normal life can be torturous at times. You don't have Christ. Be tough. Suffering is common. And in a world populated by sinners, we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. And in fact, we should be surprised that we don't suffer more than we actually do. But this suffering isn't isn't just isolated to you or me. Suffering provides a means of relationship that bridges every generation gap to the youngest person, to the oldest person. Whether you are making $9 an hour or you're making $9 billion an hour. Whether that you are an outgoing person or you're an introverted person, whether that you are from the middle of Siberia and you're with people that are from the middle of Texas or whether that is from a different ethnicity or whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, suffering bridges every one of those and it's common to every person. And suffering is something that all of us have to deal with on differing levels and to differing degrees. But no one is immune. And because no one is immune, it's a common ground for ministry. It becomes a common ground for identifying with other people. People don't know. If, I, if you tell them, have you believed in the atoning work of Jesus Christ? Some people will say, well, what does atoning mean? And then what is, who is Jesus Christ? If you say, have you had any difficulty in your life, lady? Uh-huh. But we know as Christians why we suffer, don't we? Sin entered the world, and when it did, it brought with it pain. It brought difficulty in work. It brought pain in childbearing. It brought dealing with imperfect people. And we're really good at growing in our sin and being better and better and better at it. I was reading the other day with the the thought, you know, we are supposed to be, we're being sanctified to be more like Christ. But sin also has its sanctity. It's a fine work, but it goes in a different direction. You just kind of grow in your ability to do sin. It just gets more nasty. One way is going to a Christ, but sin's trying to take us as far the other way as possible. But we know the remedy as well. Jesus Christ came and he suffered and he perfectly suffered to give us hope and the ability to deal with our suffering now and the promise of no more suffering in the future. That's a lot to offer as Christians. The fact that there will one day be for the person who trusts in the perfect work of Christ no more pain and no more aches 
and no more tears and no more suffering because Christ took all of that on Calvary and said, it is finished. It's done. It's over with. And he conquered sin and death. And it is finished even now. And we wait longingly for that consummation. Let me give you quickly five truths about suffering that the Christians got to have as the foundation, as the bedrock for ministry with other people that are suffering, believers or unbelievers. Five quickly. Number one. The Bible clearly declares that God is sovereign over all things, even suffering. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Acts 4, 27 and 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? Your hand and your plan, that's God's, God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. The Bible clearly declares that God is sovereign over all things, even suffering. I remember looking at Instagram one day and seeing someone that I know and love dearly reading a book and lauding the book on the fact that God is not behind all things so if you get in a car one day and somebody runs into you and kills your passenger that's their fault god wasn't in that he didn't he wasn't behind that he didn't have control over that situation that kind of theology will put you in an insane asylum really quickly that's the only thing we've got to hold to in all this is that god in his Perfect holiness and perfect love is in control of all of it. Number two, the Bible clearly says that God is good. God is good. Psalm 25, 7 through 8. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. The Bible clearly says that God is good. Number three, the Bible clearly says that God has a purpose for our suffering. God has a purpose for our suffering. Tripp says in his book, the Bible doesn't present suffering as a hindrance to our redemption, but as a tool God uses to work his redemptive purpose in us. Read the entire book of First Peter if you want to know more about that. Or Romans eight seventeen. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Number four. The Bible clearly explains the ultimate reasons we suffer. We suffer because we're in a fallen world. There is disease and your body is subject to that disease and illness. There are natural disasters. There are dangerous animals. There are steps that you don't see that break bones. We suffer because of our flesh, our own sinful choices. Rather than choosing that which is right, we choose that which is wrong. And we suffer because of it. We suffer because of others' sins against us. We suffer because of the devil who is a liar and he takes all that breeding sin, James 1, lust in our own hearts and tempts us with that. 
And finally, we suffer for his good purpose, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yes. But. Amen. Right. Number five, and I'll go through these quickly again here in just a minute. The Bible is clear that God's sovereignty over suffering never means that suffering isn't real and painful or excuses the evildoer. Number one in that list, the Bible clearly declares that God is sovereign over all things, even suffering. The Bible clearly says that God is good. The Bible clearly says that God has a purpose for our suffering. The Bible clearly explains the ultimate reasons we suffer. And the Bible is clear that God's sovereignty over suffering never means that suffering isn't real and painful or excuses the evildoer. That's what has to shape our thinking when we're dealing with people that are suffering. Is these truths. That God's in charge of it. That God is good. That has a reason. Has a purpose. It has a reason and a purpose for even the unbeliever. We'll talk about that in a minute. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 2. We're going to spend the remaining time. Go as fast as possible. but Hebrews 2. We're going to spend the remaining time in really two chapters. Hebrews 2 and 2 Corinthians. Look with me at verse 10 and 12. Let's let's build from this foundation of biblical thinking, the bedrock of what uh, God says to us in the Bible about suffering. Let's build up from there now and in terms of how are we going to identify with others in suffering. And the writer of Hebrews, who we're not 100% sure who that person is, gives us a very fitting um, way of thinking and practical Application. Verse 10, Hebrews 2, verse 10 through 12. For it was fitting that he, as Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. First of all, we see that this is a passage about Christ. And we are with Christ in the family of those who suffer. He is acquainted with our sorrows and a grief. Jesus is one who is compassionate and understanding. He suffered as we did. Notice the, the title there of brothers, second half of verse 11 and beginning of verse 12, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That notes that we are not only in the same family, we are in a similar position within the family and that we share similar life experiences because of that position. That really gets to the core of the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The fact that we are brothers with him carries with it immense weight in the sense of him understanding and knowing what we have gone through and us being 
like him in a sense. That brings about humility. Verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. Perfect through suffering. What does that mean? Is Christ not perfect? No. Christ was perfect. So what does that mean that he was perfect through suffering? Was he not perfect enough and then suffering somehow did this perfect work? No. No, that's not the case at all. We know that Christ was perfect and that he came. But the suffering was to show or demonstrate his righteousness on this earth. It was to help us to see that he was perfect. So he suffered. He came perfect, holy son of God, yet son of man. But then in that suffering, he demonstrated to the world his righteousness. And we as believers, as brothers in him, as we share in that suffering, we're not the perfect son of God over here, but we have been declared righteous by the blood of Christ. Justification. We've been declared perfect in him. But then we go through this suffering for two, per- for two reasons. One, to point to Jesus. And two, that we might grow to be like him, personal holiness. Hebrews 12 and 13. We must be holy as he is holy. And that's, he uses that suffering in order to purify us, make him, make us like him, but also that people see our suffering and they see what is going on here. That person's smiling and they're dying of cancer. What in the world? Even with unbelievers, we share in suffering. And this understanding that Christ has suffered for us and we suffer in the same way gives us humility. And it also lets us look at the unbeliever or the person who's suffering, not as somebody who's less than we are, but as equals in the fact that we're standing right next to them as brothers as well. And even if it's an unbeliever, they're still they haven't been declared Righteous in Christ, but that suffering's got its perfect purpose. Push them to Christ. So the goal of all suffering is to see Jesus, isn't it? Realizing this gives us opportunity to make truth concrete for people. It's real and they see it in our lives. It encourages people to depend on Christ rather than us. It encourages humility and honesty in our dealings with people. It redeems our sinful past in the sense that we look back at our failings and our sufferings and we say, but Christ still done that work, is not changed, and he'll use my failings even with my dealings with other people to say, I failed here, look what Christ did, he can do the same for you. It makes my life a window to the glory of Christ and ultimately it results in worship of Christ and not us. The book gives an illustration of if we had the ability to go back in time and stand behind Monet as he's doing this wonderful artwork and we'd not look at it and go, man, what wonderful paintbrushes. Those are incredible. Where can I get some of those? And then I can paint like you. No. We look at it and go, you could put a stick in that guy's hand. Look how look at look at the gifting of this man. Look at the ability Monet has. And that's the same way. We want people to look at us and go, 
Wow, Christ. Not, hey, can I get what? If I get your jacket, can I do that? Can If I cut my hair that way, can I look like you? Remember the story I told earlier about throwing the rock the wrong way? <clears throat> that type of comfort doesn't go very far in real life, does it? Just to go up to a person and say, it'd be okay, you'll be all right. And it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to know what to say to a person when you go up to them because that's kind of the first thing. That's, you know, that's what mama tells all the little boys. They come running into the house crying, you'll be okay, you'll be all right. So we just kind of get that thing, right? We're going to be supposed to go to another person, you'll be okay, you'll be all right. And that doesn't do well, and that's not, that's not, that's not very helpful at all. Let's go to our second passage we're going to look, like, look at in the last few minutes here, Second Corinthians 1, and let's look at the help Scripture gives us with providing comfort to people in pain. First Corinthians, second, excuse me, Second Corinthians, chapter one, verse three. Let me read it. Follow along as I read, verse three, for through verse eleven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a confusing round and round and round. We'll come to that in a minute. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we endure. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church here. Verse 8, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life of self, life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must Help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Notice a few things, verse 3 and 4. God is the source of all comfort, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And it doesn't, it doesn't help, nor is it truthful to go to another person and say, everything's going to work out, brother, it's going to be okay in the end. Because it very well may not. And to give someone that type of comfort is to, to take a, a helium, it's like taking a helium balloon into a hospital room with a little boy. Boy, that kid gets a lot of fun out of that helium balloon for a couple hours. And then what happens the next morning? Laying on the ground. And it's as far away as possible from giving any help. But when we, when we realize that God loves us with an everlasting love, that I am his and that he is mine, that the one who rules over all and created all and controls all, all of that holds me in the palm of his hand. Okay, there we can start to get some comfort. That all of this craziness that's going on around me, I'm sitting in the hollow of his hand, the mighty God who says, you're mine, 
Nothing will happen to you unless I allow it, and it will only be to the degree I allow it to happen to you. I'm in perfect control of this. That begins to give people comfort. Look at verse 4. Who comforts us in all afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. The comfort we have received from the Lord has ministry in view. It's for the purpose of conveying that comfort to others. Number three, look at uh, scripture there. God wants us to share in Christ's suffering. It's very clear here. You've been called to suffer so that you can receive his comfort. You see God's goodness there? He wants to just in as many ways as possible show himself to us. So you can receive his comfort when we suffer. Why? So that we'll be able to comfort others. So that they can comfort others, so that they can comfort others, so that they can comfort others. There's the Great Commission, making disciples. Even our suffering in this passage shows that our, even our suffering does not belong to us, but it belongs to the Lord. Tripp says, perhaps it is easier to recognize that our blessings belong to the Lord than it is to recognize that He owns our suffering. But see, suffering is not about us. It's still about God. And you look at a little child, we've probably all seen it, where you, you're looking from a distance. Of course, it's never your child. And you see them fall down and they start to cry and they're and you see them kind of stop. And then mama comes out the front door and what do they do? <laughs> Suffering brings power. If I yelled hard enough, mama will give me a hug and a kiss. But of course, that stops about the time you're five and never do it when you're 32. <laughs> It has a purpose, and that is that Christ would be exalted. Now, that isn't to say that tears and mourning and lamenting are going to be apart from suffering. That, that those things are very much apart from suffering. And that doesn't mean that you don't have those with another person. But on the contrary, that means that it's the hand of Jesus who is acquainted with that suffering. And you take that suffering to him. And yes, you cry in front of your friend, but you're crying not only in the pain and suffering, but also, we're going to go there next, helping them see how God is ministering to you in that way. Look at verse 7 and verse 10. Our hope for you is unshaken. Verse 10, He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. The redemptive purpose of all of this is hope in a fallen world. God redeems all this suffering in order that we might have hope. So to sum up 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11, it teaches us that there is purposeful suffering leading to the experience of God's comfort, which produces the ability to comfort others, which results in a redeemed community that has hope. teaches that there is purposeful suffering leading to the experience of God's comfort, producing the ability to comfort others, resulting in a redeemed people, a redeemed community that has hope in God. 
Verse 8 through verse 11 in this passage gives us some practical application. And this is where we'll close. Notice what Paul does here. Paul tells a story. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So every one of us is involved with suffering and the purposes for God's glory. But we have then a testimony. We have then a story about what we have gone through in suffering. And we can tell others about we can tell others the story about our suffering. But there's some there's some elements to go by here. There's some application. There's a framework to tell the story and how to tell the story here in eight through eleven. And I I apologize if I go through this too too quickly, but if you want the notes, come talk to me. I'll give them to you. Number one, tell your story in a way that breaks down the misconception that you are essentially different from the person that you are helping. Tell your story in a way that breaks down the misconception that you are essentially different from the person you are helping. Identify with their suffering. I've suffered too. Here's I'm not not any different than you. I've got suffering. This is what it looked like, or this is the same way. Number two, always tell a completed story. You know, this is not a misery loves company thing here. I'm not I'm not suggesting you go to and just get buddy buddy with your misery. That's not the point. Tell the completed story. Tell them the situation. Tell them the struggle that you had, and then tell them what God did. You got to get to the end there. Honestly describe your struggles. You know, Paul doesn't mince too many words here. We were utterly burdened, despaired of life itself. We felt we'd received the sentence of death. Honestly describe the struggles. But, number four, describe those struggles in a discerning and purposeful manner. You don't need to get into the gory details. You need to give them what is needed in the sense of what you were struggling with and what the situation was. But you don't have to tell them how much blood came out of the wound and how many stitches you had to get. I mean, you don't have to get into all the gory details. You've got to get to you're you're seeking to tell the story to get to God, because that's number five. Tell the story in a way that makes God the key actor. It's his story. He's the lead role. It's his redemptive plan. He should be the central theme of the story as Christians. Tell you, number six, tell your story with humility, admitting your continuing, continuing need for grace. We never want to tell the story as if I've now arrived. I don't suffer anymore. No, that's not the case. Help them to understand that you have a continuing need for grace and God has given his grace to you to get you to this point and he's continuing to give grace, but you still need it. Number seven, make clear that they need God, not your story. Sometimes we just want to hear somebody else is going through it too. But that's not what they need. They need to know that God is in the midst of this. And then number eight, the goal of the story should always be worship. Let me quote from the book here. Giving hope is more than convincing people that things will get better or helping them decide what to do. Giving hope introduces them to a person. It helps people who are dealing with the unthinkable to view life from the perspective of God's glory and grace and their identity as His children. 
As you tell your own story, you help people to see that the very suffering that seems to cloud their theology actually expounds it. It is in the darkest night that the glory of the Redeemer's love and grace shines brightest. Hope points people toward the light. You could say hope points people to be worshipers of Christ. I say we're going to spend the majority of our time on identifying with suffering, and we've done that. And the last element of loving ministry is accept with agenda. Accept with agenda. I'm going to quote here from the book and then close. Here again, Tripp says, we follow the example of Christ's love for us. The grace that adopts me into Christ's family is not a grace that says I am okay. In fact, the Bible is clear that God extends his grace to me because I am everything but okay. And as we enter God's family, we are in need of radical personal change. God's acceptance is not a call to relax, but a call to work. Paul says in Titus 2, 11 through 12, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. The grace God extends to us is always grace leading to change. His acceptance is not the end of his work. It is the beginning. Our justification must never be separated from our sanctification. They are two parts of a seamless work of redemption. God's grace is always grace leading to change. He wants us to be like Christ because that's where he gets glory when his son is glorified. And so we work. We work as we rest in Jesus. We work because he's done all the work for us. But now we respond in love and say, how can I love you more? Show me, show me, show me, give me, give me. I want to know how I can... Show the world that I love you because you've loved me so much. Identify with suffering and accept with agenda. We want people to know that we are willing to walk with them and be patient with them and love them and give them grace and help them because that's what Christ has done for us. But we also want them to be like Jesus, not just to be comfortable or happy or out of the current situation that they're in. Let's pray. Yes. Inside, I guess, or in addition to what you said, um, I think that we need to be careful to resist the temptation to try to explain to the suffering person the reason for their suffering. Right. Unless it's something obvious, of course, and sometimes just in your natural uh, senses, you can tell a person is suffering because of some trouble or issue, but but when something huge happens, you know, someone dies in my family, it, it would be it would be wrong, I think, for someone else to say, well, this is because of this. Mm-hmm. God is trying to get your attention, <laughs> right. trying to shake right. because of that thing. And I think that when we don't know, really I don't think it's a good idea to try to pronounce the reason for something. No. But I would also say that that there is a time for a person who is sick, for example, to come to the elders yes. and to pray. Yes. And there's a part of that that is talking about confession of sin. 
But, but even there, the wisdom of the elders is to ask the person, is there a sin that you need to confess to God and, and not to, you know, to try to, to point out those things that I see as, as the reason for your suffering. Right. Does that make sense? Totally. Getting a good word there from the left. Anything else? Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you, Lord, for this this time this morning. I thank you, Lord, for um, the body and the wisdom that is there. Um, Father, we, we thank you that you have suffered for us perfectly. And we have the ability now, because of the work of Christ, for us to assist others in seeing Christ, even in the midst of the difficulty. Help us to do that, Father, tenderly. Help us to do it with love, as we would want it done to us as believers. Help us to do it in a sensitive nature. But help us also, Father, to not shy away from seeing ways that we might be able to minister the love of Christ to a person through the suffering that they're going through. Help us, Lord. Give us grace through the Spirit to... Practice these things for your glory. We're going to make mistakes. We're not going to do this as well as we would want to at times. And we trust that you're going to help us learn and grow and mature in these areas of reaching out and loving others. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.